Turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. Mark 4, 21 through 34. I think there are a lot of people out there who make the gospel out to be something really hard to understand. They might clothe it with fancy degrees and top it off with flowery theological terminology. And yet the wonderful truths of the kingdom were taught by Jesus in earthly, even earthy, illustrations that anyone can relate to, but not just anyone can understand. Follow as I read these parables, sometimes called enigmatic sayings, things that are difficult to understand on the surface but have a meaning that is revealed by the Holy Spirit. Beginning at verse 21, chapter 4 of Mark. And Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts it in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. As we consider this reading of God's word, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, give us and grant us understanding that we might have a heart to understand this word, ears to hear it. And Lord, we pray that you will grant us great wisdom from it. Fill us with your spirit this day. And Lord, if anything is spoken here, thought here, said here, that is not consistent with your word, let it fall away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. A small group of scientists huddled together in the year 1942 underneath the football field at the University of Chicago. Few people knew Enrico Fermi and his team of scientists was there. It was a top secret event. Little did the world know that the smallest particles working together would change the course of history on the smallest scale. An experiment was being waged to unleash the most powerful physical forces that have ever been unleashed on the world. Even more powerful is the light of God. 
Even more powerful is the power of the kingdom unleashed in Jesus Christ and revealed through parables of all things. We're going to look at different parables that Mark has put together. And like the other gospel writers, he seemed to kind of jumble and bunch these together in a group which are spread out in different ways in both Matthew and Luke. But he will remind us, first of all, to let our light shine. This is perhaps one of the more familiar of the parables of Christ. In fact, there's a lit children's song that many of you probably grew up with. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. What is this light or the lamp here? Is a lamp brought in to be under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? You know the answer to these questions. Obviously, if you bring a light in, it's meant to be revealing things, not hidden. And so here is the lamp. What is this lamp that he's talking about? First of all, the lamp is the truth of Jesus Christ revealed in these parables. The things that he teaches us and that are revealed to us are we are not to hide to ourselves and keep to ourselves. We're supposed to pass it on to others. But this lamp, at least according to Mark, seems to be something specific. In fact, in the original Greek, the grammar is there in two different ways which suggests a real answer to this question, what is the lamp? The first is there's a definite article. In case you don't know what that is, that's the word the. The word the in Greek talks about the lamp. In other words, it's a singular thing. The other thing that it says here, our particular translation, the ESV, doesn't necessarily give us this. The word brought is really the word comes. The lamp comes not to be put under a basket or under a bed, but on a stand. Because of this, this lamp, I think Mark is telling us, is Jesus himself. Not only the truth revealed in the parables, because the parables are being taught about the Savior who is bringing and initiating the kingdom by his presence incarnate among the people and to fulfill his mission to die on the cross and rise again from the dead. But Jesus himself is the light. In fact, what does Jesus say in the book of John? I am the light of the world. So when we're to shine forth this lamp, the light of this lamp is Jesus himself. And of course, what does he say about it in verse 22? Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. The hidden is supposed to be revealed. Now, was Jesus hidden in those days? Yes. They did not understand that he was the Christ. They did not understand the nature of the kingdom. They did not understand all of these things. And so the people at this point in the Gospel of Mark were all asking the question, who is this guy? Could he be the Christ? Could he be insane? Could he be filled with demons? Who is this guy? And here Jesus has revealed to them through the parable that he has just given, the parable of the sower, that in the word that is sown of God, there will be some who believe upon him and bear fruit. And this fruit bearing is in part passing on this gospel truth to others. 
You know, it's kind of interesting the words that are used here for secrets and for hidden things are the words cryptic and apocryphal. In other words, in some ways, these things are cryptic. He's teaching them in parables after all. And unless you have the Spirit working in your heart, you're not going to understand all the things of the Spirit. That's what Scripture tells us. On the other hand, it's apocryphal. You know what that refers to. Things like the Apocrypha of John. Those things that are to be revealed. Sometimes they're difficult to understand. Sometimes they're hard to grasp. But as the Spirit works in someone who has ears to hear, then they will begin to understand some of these truths in the speed and process by which the Spirit works in that individual. But of course... What is it, really, that's coming forth? First of all, Jesus. And secondly, the kingdom mystery that was to be revealed. Do you remember what happened back in verse 11 of this chapter? Jesus said to them, To you has been given the secret or mystery of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. In other words, the secrets or the hidden things are not things that will always be secrets or hidden. They are not mysteries by which we must find some hidden code in the scriptures to find out things. They are things revealed to God's people through Christ and his spirit. I want you to think just a minute. Heard a lot this week about electric cars for various reasons. Imagine if you developed a battery for an electric car that never had to be charged regardless of how many miles you drove it or how long the engine was running for a period of five years. It would be pretty popular today, wouldn't it? Imagine that it was economical and everybody could purchase it. Cheap cars that would last for five years with no recharging at all. Consumers would love it, wouldn't they? Would you hide that to yourself? What would people say about you if you hid that from other people? Now, I have to say, in my lifetime, there's always been all these conspiracy theories about these internal combustion engines that have been developed to, to get exorbitant mileage rates and how the gas companies or oil companies purchase those plans and would not reveal them to the world out of their greed. Now, I don't know if that's true. But it's this kind of thing... If that would be so wonderful that we would be afraid to hide those things from the world, especially because of the repercussions upon us if people found out we invented something like that and never told anybody, how much more when it comes to eternity should be we, we be willing to give the gospel to others and the kingdom truths of Jesus Christ to others, even though it seemingly contradicts verse 12, that said that parables were being taught that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. So if it's not going to change people, why do we give it to them? Because no matter who responds to the gospel, our call as believers is to proclaim the gospel. We're throwing the seed everywhere and we're looking for that seed to be given great power by the Lord. And everyone is open to the gospel call, even though not everyone will believe. 
So when we let our light shine, we're letting both the proclamation of the word, both the proclamation of our need to repent of our sins and the proclamation of our sins forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ, both those things, and as Matthew tells us, even our good works show the power of the kingdom that others might do what? Glorify God. First of all, we let our light shine. Secondly, we set high goals for the gospel. He says in verse 24, he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has more will be given from the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. Now in one sense, this is the principle of reciprocity. Spell that on your outline. The principle of reciprocity, it's a negative sense, we've all heard that, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. That's a negative sense. In other words, somebody harms you, then they're harmed in the same way that they have harmed others. But this is the positive sense of reciprocity, a measure for a measure. He says, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. Now, this is done in different contexts in the Gospels and has apparently different meanings. In one place, it refers to judgment. You know that place in Scripture where it says, judge not, for the measure by which you judge, you will be judged. In this case, it has to do with the proclamation of the Gospel and with our expectations of what the Gospel and the Kingdom will do. Do you really believe that the word of God can transform people's hearts and lives? Do you really believe that a reformed, frozen, chosen Presbyterian church can grow? Do you really believe that people in our community can come to faith in Jesus Christ for the first time by the proclamation of God's word, the primary instrument by which he does so? What is the measure you are measuring by? Call, it's a call to pass on the word's transforming truths. For the one who has more will be given. In other words, if you have the ears to hear, you will begin to be taught by the Holy Spirit the truths of these parables and the other truths of Scripture. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you will not gain these things, and you will not understand the things of God. High goals. You know, it's interesting. Today in our culture, if you were to look at the local movies, you know, you can type in your Apple iPhone or whatever you use to, to search things. You say, movies near me, right? So you can look up all the, the theaters and all the movies and all those other things. And it used to be, even a few years ago, it used to be that the big blockbuster movies were the ones that had the most advertising and the, the most famous celebrities on their cast list and the, the ones that were, were heavily, heavily advertised all the people. Well, it's kind of turned upside down a little bit, maybe partly because of all the streaming and not as many people go to physical theaters and all this kind of thing, but, but now it's by social media and word of mouth 
primarily, it seems, that movies gain popularity. Now, the big blockbusters, they get the advertising and all this. They're going to get some folks. But now there are some independently made movies or other small movies that are very popular because people like them. And they go to them. And I ask the question, what makes a movie successful? Is it that it makes money? Is it that the most people watch it? Is it that there's the most enjoyment that gets out? Is it the message that's in it or any of those things? And this is the kind of measure we use for all kinds of things. But what kind of measure do we use for growth in the church? Will we grow with the current measures we have in place, the current expectations? Are we preparing for growth in our church with what we do? And what God asks us to do in making disciples, are we preparing for growth? Are we measuring growth the proper way? These are questions we must ask as a result of this parable. What are your expectations for the kingdom? Is your bar set really low or is it set really high? Is your bar of expectation for growth in the kingdom that somebody's just going to come to church once a week and worship God for an hour? Or is your expectation that their life is going to be transformed by the power of God's word in so many ways we cannot possibly imagine what it would have looked like before we came to Christ? The measure we use, are we preparing for high goals for the gospel? Thirdly, even though we might set these high goals, and even though we might work hard for the sake of the kingdom, who's going to bring the harvest? God will. This parable is alone in Mark. Matthew doesn't have it. Luke doesn't have it. And of course, John's book is a little different in its makeup than the synoptic gospels. This parable says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Here's this guy scattering seed again. You know what it was in the parable of the, the sower? Uh, he's scattering it everywhere because they scattered the seed first in those days in that culture, and then they would plow. So he's out there throwing the seed all over the ground, not knowing what's going to produce the most. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. On the one hand, there's a true sense of mystery here. How does God do that? How does he make that seed grow up into a plant that bears fruit? Isn't that the question that scientists are asking with their formulas and fertilizers? Isn't that the question we're asking? And the amount of seed we put in the ground, you know, now we have all these computer models. If you go out and you try to plant the seed out in your, in your field, now you can have all of the details programmed into the computer of your planter. And so when that planter goes in certain types of ground or in certain places of your property, it will put a certain amount of seed. In another place, it will put another amount of seed. The fertilizer will change. All. all you have to do is program it and press the buttons, and now even the things drive themselves so that the farmer can sit in his tractor playing his ukulele while the tractor goes down the road and does everything it's supposed to do. How does God do that? The farmer analogy is this. We know that in real life, 
even though the farmer now can play his ukulele and going down the field or whatever, we know that it's still work. Farmers have some of the longest hours of any worker in our society. Even if they have all the technology and all the, the artificial intelligence that we can have as we do these things, even in this, there are long hours. It takes hard work. The farmer in real life is not idle. And yet, that's a detail in the parable that stands out, isn't it? Jesus says all he does is sleep. He goes to bed. He gets up in the morning. And what happens while he's doing that? The crop grows. In real life, the farmer does not cause the growth. Now, he works for it. He plants. He weeds. He does everything he can to fertilize and cause that crop to grow. But in the end, he's not the one who makes it grow. Ask those guys who've tried this garden out here. They'll plant a row of corn and they'll get one ear. Or a few years ago, they planted a bed of sweet potatoes and got tons of sweet potatoes. Another year, they don't get anything. Who causes it to grow? God does. In fact, it's kind of funny, the word here is that the good soil, in this good soil, what happens? It spontaneously bears fruit. That's the word that's used here. The earth produces by itself first the blade, so forth and so on. It's, it spontaneously grows. It sprouts and grows. We know not how. In fact, the Greek word is where we get the English word automatically. Just like that, we get stuff coming out of the ground. It's a reminder that even though God designs us to work, in fact, work was instituted before the fall, before sin came into the world. In fact, he wants us to work hard. And sometimes we Christians think that when it comes to church things, we can let other people do the jobs or we don't want to get too tired or we don't want to do this. And the indication here is that he wants us at times to be exhausted for the sake of the kingdom. But God is the one that makes the plant grow and bear fruit. And yet the farmer still harvests the crops. Isn't that amazing? He may plant, he may water, as Paul says, but God makes the crop grow and we enjoy the fruits. Over the last year, we had a men's Bible study on the Ten Commandments. And at first, I was thinking to myself, the Ten Commandments, how many of these guys really want to go through the Ten Commandments? You know, you go through the Ten Commandments and, and you, know, you know the things, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. And, and how many times have you gone through those commandments? You've read them, you've looked at them. If you're older, if you're younger, you may not have ever encountered them, but if you're older, you probably read them through in school even. And yet these guys, some of whom have read these Ten Commandments hundreds of times, Aha moments. And they realize when it comes to this command, when I understand the total implication of that command, I'm sinning. And I need to repent. These aha moments from folks who may have read the gospel a hundred times, read 
read the commandments a hundred times already, would have these aha moments. Why? Because God causes the growth, not us. The comfort we have in this parable is this, God causes the growth. I'm not responsible for your spiritual growth. I'm responsible for obedience to God and proclaiming the kingdom and being your pastor and shepherd and helping you and counseling you in any way I can, giving you the word of God, but I can't make it grow in you. But God can. And the work is this. What is our job then? Are we just to be the idle farmer who just goes to bed and rises in the morning? That's tempting sometimes. I like sometimes to just go home and watch TV and do whatever I want to do and, and don't worry about anything else. Our job is to be used of God through the proclamation of the word and obedience to Jesus Christ. The farmer had to go out and plant seed, but he's not the one who caused the crops to grow. The farmer had to go out and harvest the crops, but it's Jesus who will in the end bring the harvest and separate the wheat from the tares. So we're supposed to let our light shine. We're supposed to set high goals for the gospel. We understand that God will bring the harvest. But yet still, what do we have a tendency to do? To underestimate the kingdom of God. This is the other most of the famous parables in here. Is the mustard seed. What can we compare to the kingdom of God? Or what parable should we use it for? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. I'm sure you've heard all kinds. If you've been in church for many years, you've heard all kinds of different things about what this particular parable means. I have to say, my father was a gardener, and he planted all kinds of things. I remember just all kinds, anything from uh, zucchinis uh, to corn to beans. To, I mean, you name it, he planted it. But there's one thing that I never saw him plant, and that was mustard. And yet we're told this was the largest annual in the vegetable garden. What is it saying about this? Is the focus on the smallness of the seed or is the focus on the largeness of the plant? No, the focus is on the unleashed power of God. First of all, to understand it is supernatural power. It's the kingdom of God. Remember, he's comparing the kingdom of God to this mustard seed that grows into the biggest plant in your garden. It is not natural to our eyes to see how that works. In that sense, it is supernatural power. The other thing is it is international power. You say, Pastor, how in the world can you say this is international power? Well, this is the reference of the birds in the air making its nest in the branches. If you know your illustrations throughout Scripture, you know that in times in Ezekiel or in Daniel... There are illustrations of birds coming and resting in branches of things, particularly in visions or dreams. And in those particular instances, those branches are referring to nations of the world. So this is an understanding 
that the gospel may be small. It's starting in one of the most insignificant places on the face of the earth, in one of the smallest countries, among one of the most insignificant people, powerless, because they are under the influence of Rome in their day. They have no military to speak of at this particular point in time. There's one individual that even their own people have said nothing can good can come from Nazareth. They can't believe it would come from this little territory of Galilee where people are fishermen for the most part. And yet in that little small beginning, unleash the most wonderful, wonderful thing that the world has ever seen. A Savior, Jesus Christ, to save people from all the nations that's international, to save people in the most powerful ways, from even the, the worst proclamations of the gospel, the preachers with no gifts and talents or understanding of scripture, God can use to even convert others. You see, we small-minded Christians often rule out the unexpectedly large results of the gospel. How many times have you said to yourself, that person's hopeless? I don't think that person's ever going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or how many times have you said to yourself, we just cannot overcome the influence of the world in this area. Or how many of you have said to yourself, our understanding of the scripture here, because all the world seems opposed to that particular understanding, I don't see how that's going to change anything. These are small-minded Christians. I've been that sometimes. I've wondered how in the world can this guy over here really believe the gospel? And I said sometimes, how can we compete with this? It's not about competition. What is Christ saying here? He says in verse 33, with many such perils, this is Mark, the narrator, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. You see, Christ unleashed the power of the word. But notice this qualification, as they were able to hear it. I wish I could say everybody is going to come away from this sermon with an equal understanding, equal benefit, because I was such a wonderful preacher up here. I'm not. I can't. I don't know what you're going to go out of here to hear. But I do know, unless you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you do not have the Holy Spirit who will teach you all things. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit to teach you all things, then I pray that God would let that Spirit regenerate your heart so that you will believe upon Jesus Christ for your salvation. As you are able to hear it, you will understand, pay attention to, and see the kingdom growth. And with private instruction, even the disciples, you know, Peter, James, and John, and all those, you know, they're hearing these parables. I kind of wish I was a fly on the wall sometimes. And, and, and here, their first hearing of Jesus saying this parable, and one disciple turning to the other, what was that he said? Or what in the world is he talking about now? And, and I, I wonder what it must have been like for them. But, you know, then I think, 
That's me. I come to this week about these parables and I think, oh, I'm, I'm not good at preaching parables. I'm good at teaching the historical narratives. I enjoy that. Uh, I'm good at teaching uh, the, the, the passages that are very clear. But, but these parables sometimes I stumble upon. And yet, what is it that can give us the instruction? It's the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus isn't with us now. He's now ascended and is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And yet, he has given us this great gift of the Holy Spirit, the most wonderful gift for all believers in the church. In fact, so much of a gift that he told the disciples after he rose from the dead, he said, wait here. He instructed them for 40 days. He says, wait here until you receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit takes the place of Jesus in instructing and giving us understanding of the scriptures. I can give you the greatest commentary quotes. I can give you the best theological treatises. My job is to give you the word and let the spirit do his work. On the plains now known as Hornado del Muerto, appropriately nicknamed or called the Journey of Death, at the Alamogordo bombing range 210 miles south of Los Alamos, New Mexico, on July 16, 1945, the world's first nuclear explosion took place. The scientists of that day, even these scientists who worked hard on this for now three years with all kinds of theory, all kinds of work, looking at all the possibilities, some of them were scared to death because they didn't know what would really happen. But curiosity also took them. What was going to happen when they set off this atomic bomb in the desert of New Mexico? Do we really believe the kingdom of God is greater than an atomic bomb? Do we really believe and have become prepared for God to unleash kingdom power in the church even today? When we say that we want to pray for revivals, do we really expect God to work in powerful ways? Do we really expect him to be working in us? Are we prepared for those who are going to come to Christ? Sometimes I am, sometimes I'm not. Do we really understand the power that has been unleashed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Perhaps some of you do. Perhaps some of you know the testimony of Christ in your life and how you have been totally transformed. You're a new man, a new woman in Christ. Your life is different. How is it different? Stop sinning. You come to believe in Jesus. You love him. So now there's a struggle in your life between the flesh and the world and between the things of God. And now your life, at one time it was all about whatever it was about. But now you have this this journey of difficulty because you want the things of God. And like Paul, you say, I want to do what I'm supposed to do, but sometimes I don't do it. And the things I know that I shouldn't do, sometimes I do those things. And yet that power within you, the Holy Spirit, God can use by your works and your obedience and your humility and your repentance and your works of God focused on the very word and person of Jesus Christ. God can use that to unleash the power of his spirit on others and bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. And he can do that in you to change you, to make you aware of your sin, 
to make you love him when you didn't love him before. And as the old Puritans would say, to, to light on fire the affections of your heart that you might, by God's glory, seek the kingdom first. Let's pray. Father, we pray for this power upon us. You are here, Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this gift that you promised to your disciples in the church. We thank you, Father, for the plan of salvation from the beginning of time. Lord, we confess to you, sometimes we doubt your power and your promises and your grace. Sometimes we doubt it in our own lives. Sometimes we doubt it when it comes to the lives of others. And sometimes we doubt it when we look at the world around us. Lord, help us to be good soil in which the fruit grows 30, 60, even 100 times, that by your grace the world might see Jesus Christ and the church of Christ, and they might glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name.